1: This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
0: Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So we're, what, uh, t Five days five away. days before yeah. the mayoral election. Uh, Wirepoints.org, our friend Ted Dabrowski and Mark Lennon and uh, the gang over there that does uh, all things Illinois policy related has uh, released a new report just this morning. Ranking, uh, it's a dismal one, it's a dismal ranking. Are there any other kind when it comes to talking about the country's major cities? The uh, U.S. homicide rates by top 75 Cities in terms of population in the country, number one per capita. So, the number of murders per hundred thousand is New Orleans, okay. St. Louis, Baltimore, Detroit, Memphis. Number one in total. Sweet Home Chicago, Sweet Home Chicago number one. That's not a surprise, but again, just a reminder because uh, if public safety is the Uh, major issue of the mayoral race, and if uh, one indication of that is murders, particularly when you compare Chicago to other cities that are more populous, and you find that the 700 murders in Chicago last year is significantly more than the 516 in Philly, the 438 in New York, the 435 in Houston, similar size. Uh, 50% more homicides, almost. L.A., 382. We're uh, still almost in that place where we have more homicides, just slightly less this year. But in previous years, it's been more, including under this incumbent mayor, where we have more homicides in Chicago than New York and L.A. combined. Now, this year, or last year, I should say, slightly less. But even for that, you're talking about the city of 2.8 million people versus combined metropolitan area of L.A. and New York of, what, 12 million people?
2: Yeah, and so far this year, 197 people have been shot, 42 killed, including a one-year-old girl that barely got any attention when it was on I-57. Someone came by and plugged the car and three people, in that family died.
0: And so uh, all of this, the backdrop for the end of the Lori Lightfoot experiment. Which well, will, end, <laughs> which will end on Tuesday. It informally ends on Tuesday. It'll formally end in May, but it's over as of Tuesday. Well, not Reflecting, according to
2: her. No, no, not according I, to her. I, 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 she I, thinks I'm it's going to be her and Paul Vallis in the runoff.
0: Yeah, uh, well, of course she does. Yeah. What's she going to say? I, I'm, is she going to give a concession speech right now? Of course she does. No, but. The, so uh, it's the end of the Lightfoot era. And remember how it started. Steve the pilot, that uh, uh, anatomy of a departure op ed that he wrote over at JohnCastNews.com that we went over on Monday this week, he made mention of it. Remember how the Lightfoot era started? Because I want, because I think it informs what happens in the runoff since she won't be a part of it. And since, you know, the Lightfoot experiment is over. Remember when he said. He wrote in the piece talking about his departure. He missed the primary election in 2019 because he was overseas before voting mm-hmm. started and didn't get back in time for election day. But then he said, "In the runoff, I happily voted for Lori Lightfoot because I believed that she was going to be something different because she came from outside the system, yep. even though she really she didn't. didn't.
2: Though, because she was
0: not just because she was on the board." Pl- Not just because she was on the police board, but because she was a partner of Mayor Brown. Oh. That's that, you know, the part of the, the system in Chicago isn't just the, isn't limited to the government. It's the whole ruling class infrastructure. Does that include white shoe law firms? Of course it does. And so, but it was, you know, it was her versus Tony, Tony, Tony Preckwinkle. And I get why people said, well, we know what we're getting with Queen Sugar, so that's a non-starter. So we're going to have to take a flyer on Lightfoot. So I'm not blaming people for, saying, for, for making that decision. I voted for her. Right. And so, but, the, but, but the point is to say, now, remember what you thought because you were using hope as a strategy. You thought hope could replace sobriety.
2: Well, I voted for her because it was an anti-Tony Preckwinkle vote. I did not want to vote. It's one of the times where you plug your nose, you go into the polling booth, you do your business, and you leave.
0: Well, and our our dear friend, right, oh, the lesser of two evils, right? Yeah. Uh, well, our our dear friend uh, John Cass, you know, he held out on Lori Lightfoot for a long time. In fact, when he would fill in for you and he was still sort of giving Lightfoot the benefit of the doubt, I would ridicule him, I mean, in a good nature <laughs> way because I love John.
2: And that, but, that's what you do. Yeah.
0: But But it was clear that it was over, that Lightfoot had— made her decision about what kind of mayor she was going to be and the kind of mayor that she decided to be was one who was going to seek vengeance on everyone who ever slighted her was going to parade herself around look how much fun i'm having look at me now all those who doubted me all those who made fun of me all those who slighted me i'm going to and and she so she decided to be self indulgent and uh and and miserable
2: she's a bully and,
0: and because she's a miserable person, she decided the way that I'm going to govern is to inflict my misery on on the city. And that's what she did.
2: And anybody who – anybody who questioned her, she just went ballistic on. I mean, even the conversation, like, I've got the biggest schlong in Chicago. Well, this Maybe, is, Was that good messaging? No.
0: Well, this is why even if you – even uh, many of the people who agree with her or think that she's being um, – unfairly blamed for you know, intractable problems in the city. They're not rallying to her. Why? Because she's such a dislikable, disagreeable, miserable person. Well, she has different and
2: personalities. Like sometimes she's nice, and then other days she's cantankerous and mean, and I, you, know, you just don't know what you're going to get.
0: Uh-huh. And so uh-huh, you, saw, yeah. I, you saw this picture of her. I, I, I got this picture from a friend who attended the game. And I just thought it was a great picture that encapsulates the Lightfoot experiment. This was her sitting behind a table at uh, Proviso East in Maywood on, uh, what was it, Monday night? The um, oh,
2: For the basketball. I the uh, girls'
0: sectional semifinals with uh, Lions Township versus Whitney Young. She's there, uh, from what I, my understanding, from those uh parents lt parents in attendance she was announced no applause oh. she sits down at this table and you see, you see the picture it's on my twitter feed and she's just sitting in the middle of uh a couple of people just like their hands and almost in a resigned fashion as she presides over this game you know scowl on her face hands uh you know on her lap um there's no interaction which is a bit between there's there's no emotion, um, there's some flack behind her on the phone. and it's just this a solitary figurine, which is what she was as mayor, and which is why she's going to be ushered out come Tuesday. But the life of experiment, the lesser of two evils, play the game, uh, hope in place of sobriety. Would it have been better had it been Preckwinkle? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey 5600 pro answer line. Six four six three six DA turnkey pro text line. And yeah. and that by the in the the way I asked better. Better because Preckwinkle would have made it worse or is it even possible to make it no, worse than Lightfoot made it? I
2: think as a former educator, Tony Preckwinkle, because she has a relationship with the unions and the former CTU, educator. she might have she might have helped get our kids back to school earlier. That's the only thing I can think of.
0: I don't know. Was she beating the drum to get the kids back to school during COVID?
2: She was pretty quiet.
0: Yeah. What I'm
2: saying if she was mayor and she was a former teacher and all that. I don't know. That's the only thing I could think that might have been slightly different. Yeah. Instead of eight days, Dan, we might have had 10 days of in-person learning if you're a high school student. How exciting. Right. Seismic. Yeah. Yes.
0: I mean, it probably wouldn't have ended up being that much different because they're, you know— you, you already know what kind of died in the wall Marxist Tony 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 Preckwinkle is. You weren't exactly sure where Lightfoot was gonna go. I mean it was reasonable to not be sure. Uh that you know, that's now uh, been made clear. But um uh, so thinking about it here in the context of Vallis versus Brandon Johnson mm-hmm. in the runoff. Huh up. this is the question lesser of two evils? hope for some incremental improvement or do you say i see where the zeitgeist is in the city it's for politicians like brandon johnson it's for that ideology that he reflects and we should go for maximum marxism Maxism marxism with brandon johnson on April 4th what do you think
1: you've made the switch and it feels so good you switched to Chicago's morning answer an AM 560 the answer
3: hey business owners is your business and money in good hands does your bank invest in your success hi Mike Gallagher here letting you know that when you need a relationship bank signature bank makes commercial banking personal 30, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. If
1: you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer.
0: Top of the morning, Dan and Amy talking about uh, Chicago mayor's race. Uh, primary election is on Tuesday. And my question, who's your play? Is it P-Hat-Vallis or... Maximum Marxism with Brandon Johnson. What do you think? 312-642-5600, turnkey.proanserline, 646-36DA, turnkey.proanserline. Or do people
2: like Chewy? I mean, Chewy yesterday came out. This is no, not a two-person race, folks.
0: I
4: think the mayor likes to construe things uh, to put herself uh, as a contender. I think she has
5: serious problems. She's not had a good week, uh, a good week and a half, as a matter of
4: fact. Uh, she's trying to hang on for dear life.
0: sorry. Did I doze off? Stop it. Are we on the air? I'm like, we stop. Well, none of uh, these candidates are
2: going to come on the air there, except for Willie Wilson. We've uh, lost Paul Vallis, too.
0: Well, of course, because he's a P-hat. Uh, so that's why I say it. So now we know the runoff is essentially set. It's going to be P-hat Vallis versus maximum Marxism with Brandon Johnson. So what do you choose? We just were talking about the how it played out four years ago and. After all the machinations, you know, Lightfoot and Preckwinkle, you, Preckwinkle, known quantity, Lightfoot, you had some hope, understandable. You took a flyer. You played lesser of two evils. And what happened? Did it get better or worse? Uh, could it have been better or worse? So now it's the same dynamic with a different, uh, different cast in 2023. So what do you do?
2: Well, do you think Anjanette Young's endorsement of Brandon Johnson put him over the top? Or do you think that was no. a nothing burger?
0: No. What put him over the top is his uh, widespread support among the public sector unions, not just the teachers union, but importantly, the teachers union and SEIU and the rank and file there. And then the money that they provided to put him on TV so he could get known enough to essentially be the the choice for the enough of the black uh, electorate combined with the rank and file public sector unions and Chewy Garcia, who had a chance to occupy that lane, just as, you know, ran a completely ineffectual, pointless campaign. I mean, what what is Chewy's value proposition? I have no idea. What has he done in his 30 years in office? I have no idea. He doesn't seem to either. Uh, and so there was always this lane, Vallis, the honky candidate, and then who fills this other lane among the eight? Lori Lightfoot too wildly unpopular to uh, move beyond the mid-teens. Chewy Garcia had a chance. He ran a listless campaign. Willie Wilson had a chance. He ran uh, his typical narrow-cast campaign, not thinking broadly enough of how you put together a coalition that gets into 20%. And so Brandon Johnson fills the lane with the backing of the public sector unions and you know, his share of the black vote and that's where it's at. So it's now cool. that we have a good idea where it's going to be at, what do you do? And I want to hear, come on, I want all these again these k- keyboard killers, these um internet uh, big shots, social media uh stars that uh are are taking um, me apart, or they think they are. Um come on, call in. I want I want to be You know, taken to the woodshed by the Vallis voter, particularly those that want to go, you know, full hi-hat with me on Vallis. And how dare I say anything other than Vallis is the great white hope. Vallis is the Chicago's latest savior the savior de jour of Chicago, because that's what we center right voters in Chicago and Illinois do. We sit around and we wait for somebody to designate as our savior. And then we're so disappointed when it turns out to be something less than that. So come on, give us a call. 312-642-5600, Turkey.pro answer line.
2: Well, I'm sticking with Ballas. I wiped off my tears. I licked my wounds because he's the only choice for mayor. He's going to hire more police officers. He explained how he's going to do that. He's going to reduce crime reduce property taxes eventually but most importantly he's going to bring a school choice. Not happy with what he did, but I have to get over it. I've gotten over it and I'm still supporting Vallas. And I you know, when I've taken so much heat and gotten so many emails from our listeners saying I'm so sick of you talking, you know, supporting Vallas. How could you? Well, I am. And that's just that's I'm not changing my vote.
0: Uh, okay.
2: And Brandon Johnson by the way, that $415,000 that they took of ctu teachers union dues without a vote or any notification that's under review by the illinois state board of elections <sighs> oh, oh, oh. i see that sensitivity training you took with I'm don so, lemon isn't really working.
0: i can't i mean i i'm sorry i just the these this breaking news stuff uh just,
2: well, apparently
0: this, this this stuff that you find revelatory is so um i know teachers it, who pay dues who are to write, wait
2: what do my dues go to they didn't realize that their dues were going to ctu and i said well Think of the uh-huh. union that you're a part of. You don't think that they were capable of that? Come on. Wake up. You don't uh, like it? Quit your uh, union.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: 312-642-5600. You can also text us all morning long at 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I get it. Uh, everybody's an innocent bystander in Chicago and Illinois. No, I I got the routine. I get it. Um. One thing if I could address, maybe this will prompt some uh cowardly Vallis supporters to come out of the bushes and make their case the uh Dan, you don't understand how the game is played yep
2: mm-hmm. oh, you
0: know. see what Vallis did by full you know falling in with uh, all the hysterical all the other hysterical marxists what what he did by affixing that P hat to his head and running around crying about right-wing extremists is to prompt criticism from people like you to inoculate him with the left oh it's a double bank shot nice bank shot. um except that's not at all the criticism hmm. if, if only that story were true the criticism of Vallis from people like me isn't that oh he rejected conservatives big deal He's not a conservative. He never was one. There's nothing to reject. It's a, that's irrelevant. The criticism is that he's another Harold Hill swindler that I would think Chicago and Illinois would have become a little more attuned to over the last many generations and all the Harold Hill swindlers that have run through Chicago and Illinois politics, but apparently not. So what you think he did, Valla supporters by drawing out criticism from Republicans who were voting for Vallis because uh, he's the least worst option or whatever rationale. Oh, he, he's inoculated himself with the left. That's going to come at him, right, because the left won't come at him now. Um, so he thought he positioned himself as a reasonable man of the left. Oh, genius. Oh, gosh, him and Joe Trippy must have been doing low fives over this play. So astute, not at all transparent. Right. Uh, what he did instead, and I assume the public sector unions, who are a lot more politically sophisticated than Paul Vallis, what he did is it exposed him as not the guy who will do whatever it takes to get the job done, the uh, head-down administrator who we can trust just to do the work. No, what he exposed himself as, as the guy who will not do anything to get the job done, but who will say anything to get the job. And that's a very different thing. So what happens is the play is not Vallis is a, a GOP wolf in Dems clothing. The little clip from the show a decade ago, I'd probably run as a Republican. That won't be the play. It'll be more, uh, it'll be bigger than that. The play will be, he's a fraudster. Whatever you think of Paul Vallis, you can't trust. That's the play. And that's the kill shot. And that's why Brandon Johnson will be your next mayor. Corey and Woodlawn, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer.
6: Hey, Dan. Hey, Amy. Um, I, I'm with Amy on this. I already cast my vote for Paul
7: Vallis. I do like the fact that he did bring CPS into the black. So that's a plus, but there's Except no good candidates in there.
0: Except he didn't. That's uh, well, a there- statement he makes, but they he didn't. But CPS is, I mean, there's no, no uh, accounting in the real world that ever had CPS in the black. But okay. But go ahead minor point yeah, there's, maybe there's
7: he has a no personal candidates story in the field, Cory,
0: d- no good candidates in the field okay no great candidates in the field so at least of all the evils but so the, but the question cory is because i know from our conversations on the show you're a sophisticated political thinker which is why i wanted you to run for mayor um is maximum marxism or hope for incremental improvement what's the better play
6: I mean, for me, it's the incremental improvement, but as I reread the French Revolution, this has all happened before. And, and that's the sad part about it.
0: Mm-hmm. You guys enjoy your morning. Thanks, Corey. Thanks. Michael Southside. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Thank you both for taking my call.
8: I voted for Paul Valis on Saturday. He is a policy wonk uh, who says a lot of good things about public safety. And I also remember that when he ran the uh, Chicago Board of Education back in the 90s, he strongly supported uh, athletics in the public schools. So, uh, yes, he has my vote.
0: Okay. Thanks for the call, Michael. Uh, Tom in Deer Park. Hello, Dan and Amy. Good morning. Uh,
6: I I picked up the phone before you posed the question. My comment was more in line of what you stated earlier about the lesser of two evils regarding Lightfoot and Preckwinkle. And I kept listening you very intently and accurately describe things as you're very good at doing when, when you wish. And all I could hear in my head was insert Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and then insert Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And uh, if you replayed that it, it, with those three characters, as far as how awful they are in both personality and policy and competence, you pretty much nailed it. I, you know, As for me, I would be more than happy to take 23 uh, votes from Suburban All Saints Cemetery and put them towards Paul Vallis. But uh, all kidding aside, all the terrible choices we make on all our elections are because of us, because of us. So thank you for taking that.
0: Thanks for the call, Tom. Yeah, I was hoping somebody would do that, especially Tom, since he will play lesser of two evils when it comes to the mayor's race if he lived in Chicago. But he won't play lesser of two evils with a country when it comes to Trump versus Hillary or Trump versus Biden. That's rather ironic. Um, I was hoping somebody would make that case and leave it to a never Trumper like Tom to take the bait for me. Thank you. Uh, Because uh, Chicago and the country are not the same thing. The stakes are not the same. Uh, The country is more than salvageable, which is why the vote for president matters. The policy differences between Trump and Biden or Trump and Hillary are vast as opposed to what you have for the Chicago mayor's race. Uh, In addition to that, uh, Chicago has committed to getting worse. And so – you know, if a major city wants to commit economic and cultural suicide, then you can do that. This is why we have 50 incubators of democracy. But that's a completely different dynamic, completely different dynamic than making a choice for President of the United States. Ron, Southside.
7: Hey, Dan, and I, I just tell you, I'd be glad when this is uh, over I just want to give an example. I, I I really understand where we are in this city. And you can vote for who you want to and the reasons why, but you just had a caller who said the reason he votes for Paul Valles because when he was, uh guess with the board, he supported athletics in school. What about academics? That is the reason I uh to send my child, the private school, and it cost me a lot of money because mm-hmm. there was no emphasis. So, no, we are paying for academics. That means, yeah, I understand athletics, but what about uh, uh, academics? It, it just, I, I, I just, I just don't get it. And guess what? I, I, I've been fighting for choice for a long time, but it's, in regard to um, Paul Valens, it's DOA with him. He's not going to do anything relative to fighting for uh, uh, school choice. Okay, Ain't not
2: true. Wait till he okay. gets in there. Right, right, uh, write it down, it down on the calendar. people makes fun of, but I think once he gets in there, he's going to surprise yeah, okay.
0: all of you. Oh, yeah. I Ron. Steve. Yep, that's all you need. You just got to give me the office and then wait. Yep. Watch what I do. Then I'm going to be courageous. I have to be a coward so mm-hmm. I can be a, a hero. Exactly. Yeah. No, and I'm not. In, I'm not.
2: Disc- I'm I know. But I mean, to, be, to
0: believe that, that that that's how it goes, that that's how it plays out. The politician who's the coward who waits for it to, to, to be safe to come out and yep. uh, then turns into the hero, turns into Batman. Right. That happens in comic books. It doesn't happen in Illinois or Chicago politics. But you go ahead. Let no, me tell well, you,
2: I, I can have a dream.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh Absolutely. Thanks. Um, And I live in
2: the city, so I can, you know, I actually am going to vote, and I'm taking my kids to vote.
0: Good. Fantastic. Thanks. Wonderful. I'm exercising it. To vote. Yes, it's inspired. Yes, thank you. Um, So, uh, Paul Vallis, just one one other thing, too, on this whole, you know, right-wing extremist business. Um, Paul Vallis asked me to get uh, a sit-down with Dick Uline like oh can you can you you know get me an audience with dick uline why because he wants wanted uline's money yeah. um dick uline, who um, supports conservative causes, supports conservative candidates, bankrolled my pack in support of Darren Bailey last election cycle, who I guess I mean if Desantis is, then certainly Darren Bailey's a right wing extremist who doesn't share Paul Vallis's values and so on and so forth, so he'll work behind uh, the scenes and and thankfully. Uh, I didn't embarrass myself because my spidey sense was tingling, so I did not okay. uh, make an overture to you, Line, because I recognize Paul Vallis for what he is. But that's what I'm suggesting you do as well, not you, the collective you. Recognize him for what he is, and you better temper your expectations. Because um, the little story, my little story, and what you've seen from his uh, P-hat antics over the last couple of weeks, that tells you a lot about who he is. And again, a guy who's 70 years old, who is demonstrating what his character is, will change his character once he has the reins of power. That is a wonderful Chicago fairy tale, and only that. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer.
1: You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You switch to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer.
3: Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank.
1: This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
0: Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Good idea for former President Trump to visit East Palestine, Ohio, and talk to the folks there.
2: 312 642 5600, zero, zero, Answer line 64636. Six, type in DA, then a quick comment. I, I loved seeing him there, I, and the crowd loved him. I mean, it was like Elvis has arrived. They were so happy to see him screaming. One lady almost fainted. We love you. Sign my hat. I mean, they were so happy to see him. It gave them, just happy to see people smiling. You know, well, they've, they've uh, uh, a lot.
0: Wall Street Journal editorial board suggests uh, both he and P. But, the transportation secretary, are fanning anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. not being helpful. Uh, they write uh, bottled water aside, him passing out bottled water. Uh, Trump may have made matters worse by suggesting the tap water is unsafe, even as Governor Mike DeWine and EPA head Michael Regan were drinking tap water themselves to reassure the public. Well,
2: I wouldn't drink that. They, they, those two, I mean, talk about staged events, DeWine and that EPA director with Michael Regan or whatever, going house to house. Sometimes they're drinking water from a solo cup. Other times, you know, fine crystal. Flutes. It's just so ridiculous.
0: You may quibble with the testing and whether the the drinking water is safe, although the testing seems to indicate that it is. That's what we understand to be true. Uh, But there's something else in terms of a reason for Trump to be there, and not just because this this is, quote unquote, Trump country. Uh, Something he said that I think uh, fits with a lot of the feelings of people in that town dealing with that catastrophe.
9: To the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, we have told you loud and clear you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. We stand with you. We pray for you. And we will say with you in your fight to help answer and the accountability that you deserve. We'll have that accountability. It'll all be out there very clearly.
0: Uh, he was pressed was Trump. OK, well, if uh, this was mishandled by the Biden administration, what would you have done differently, for example?
10: If you were in office right now, what would you have done to help the people of East Palestine? FEMA would have been here a long time ago. They, they Why do you think they waited on about uh, Mr. Trump? What do you think it had to do with the they fact that for me they I waited came, for you? Thank you for came, coming, Mr. Trump. Thank you, sir. When I came, you, everybody You're decided up. to come, right? You know, my Matt, nice to see
9: you.
2: Thank you. Let's see, this made me miss Trump watching this coverage yesterday because, you know, I had to watch Newsmax because Fox didn't cover it or. Of course, no ma- mainstream media ever covered it. But he was sincere. He was on point. He was serious. But he also brought some levity to the situation. I, I loved it. It made me because I thought I completely written him off. And now, after yesterday, now he's back on my uh, possible uh, candidate list.
0: Well, especially in comparison to how they feel, the residents of East Palestine, I'm saying, maybe you as well, about uh, Biden's absence, mm-hmm. not to mention his surrogate, Peabut. Uh, the absence there and, of course, his absence on President's Day in East Palestine as compared to where he was and what he was doing.
9: What this community needs now are not excuses and uh, all of the other things you've been hearing, but answers and results, and that's what I think you're going to say. See, uh Norfolk Southern needs to fulfill its responsibilities and obligations, Great. and I see that they're starting to come here now too because they also were saying they're not coming. But it means that the affected communities beyond the borders of East Palestine are uh, going to be taken care of. And they've said so, and they've said it loud and clear, and I think they probably mean it. I sincerely hope that when your representatives and all of the politicians get here, including Biden, they get back from touring Ukraine, that he's got some money left over because we're – now, at $117 billion, and as you probably know, Europe, when you add it all up, is at about $10 billion. That's a big difference, wouldn't you say?
0: Well, um, the uh, absence of Biden there, as uh, contrasted with his presence in Ukraine, I mean, that was not lost on the townspeople, their mayor, Trent Conaway, on Jesse Waters the other day. I got you, well, let Trent. Me, he let, asked, let, me, to,
9: uh, you know, before we go... I can repeat, he said, with the president being in U- Ukraine today, you know, did that surprise you?
5: Absolutely. That was the biggest slap in the face. That tells you right now he doesn't care about us. So Agreed. Uh, he can send every agency he wants to. But uh, I found that out this morning in one of the briefings that he was in the Ukraine giving millions of dollars away to people over there and not to us. And I'm furious. On so,
9: President's Day
5: in our yeah, country. Yeah, President's Day in our country. He's he's uh, over in Ukraine. So that tells you what kind of guy he is.
2: I love him. Tells it like it is. And Pete Buttigieg is coming today. What do you call him, Mayor Peabot? Peabot. 19 days later, you think he's going to get that reception that Trump got? No, people are going to boo him or if not, just completely ignore him.
0: Well, I mean, he needed to make sure it was safe for him to come. Also, as he said, he wanted to make sure he was hands off and let the National Transportation Safety Board do its independent investigation. (laughs) Didn't want to corrupt that process no of course not no
2: he's going because not. trump was there and so somebody from the administration has to go and it's going to be him
0: uh john naperville you're on chicago's morning answer hey you know, john
2: biden
6: good morning biden's over in ukraine on president's day not being with the people here that he's supposed to be protecting and serving that is utterly ridiculous and the the epa is on record one of the guys from the epa is saying We have to clean up all the contaminated water and uh, soil. Well, if it's contaminated, why is it safe to drink? There's two different messages coming from this administration and the EPA on if it's safe or not. And also the message that they're sending that I'd rather stand with Ukraine with
11: all the corruption rather than with the people of the U.S. That is pathetic.
2: Yeah, It's like they're deplorables. You know what I mean? I...
0: Well, the mixed messages too here, um here is an important point because, you know, you get the sort of hedging type of answers from Governor DeWine a few days ago. Now they're touring, as you said, homes, drinking water from Solo Cups to consistent with the testing results that they believe it's safe. The tests say the water is safe. But you were. You know, you were sort of uh, saying it was safe without knowing it was safe, talking about testing. Now you're doing testing. You were suggesting you you better drink bottled water. Don't drink from a private well until it gets tested. So I know there's a process, but, you know, you need to – there needs to be more clarity right away. Here's what we're going to do. So here's what I'm saying unequivocally. For example, right now, bottled water until we get the testing done of the groundwater uh, as well as private wells. So – Don't drink the water. Mm -hmm. Let's be sure. Let's err on the side of safety here. I'm making an unequivocal statement. Now we've done the testing. Here are the test results. Uh, Feel free to look at them. We'll hold them up for for outside experts to also assess them. Uh, We believe it's safe. I believe it's so safe. Now I'm drinking the water. That's a lot more straightforward than what the residents of East Palestine were getting up until the last 48 hours. Uh, And there's also the uh, aftermath of this. This was the subject of the CNN town hall last night that featured East Palestine residents. And via Zoom, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw uh, responding to residents' complaints, concerns, questions. Uh, One resident who spent uh, his entire life there, multiple generations, I guess, Jim Stewart, Uh, had this to say directly to Alan Shaw, who joined the town hall again by Zoom.
4: I'm angry about this. I've lived in East Palestine for 65 years now. That's my home. My grandmother came from Germany. She lived in Palestine. My dad grew up there. My family's grown up there now. And it is disgusting that we're just lost it. I live in a house that's probably the closest of any of these and and it's a shame and this is probably the next closest one and our house is you know it's been inspected it's been this it's been that i'm afraid to put my dog out just to pee i mean he's only on this tall so you know i i don't feel safe in this town now you took it away from me you took us away from us you seem like a sincere man i'm not calling you names i'm not you know what your company stinks. Because they're not watching what's going on. Workers don't pay attention nowadays. Supervisors make workers work. You've got to do something about this. I lost a lot. I lost the value of my home. I'm only one block. I can throw a stone to that burner. And what do we do now?
0: Uh, Well, what do we do now? Here was the CEO of Norfolk Southern, Alan Shaw's response.
1: Jim. Thank you for those comments. I I hear you. Um, I'm terribly sorry that this has happened to this community. What I can do and what I will do is make it right. We're going to get the cleanup right. We're going to reimburse the citizens. We're going to invest in the long-term health of this community. I'm going to see this through, and we're going to be here. And we're going to work with these community leaders to help it thrive. I think you heard the mayor talk about, you know, making this community even better. And that's, that's what I'm picking up as I'm talking to community leaders and citizens. You know, we're looking for ideas from the community on, on where we can help and things that, that we can do. Well, um, would you be willing to buy their That's why their houses? we have somebody... Sure.
2: We, will you buy them out of their houses at the property
7: value so they can, so Jim can retire? Is that is that that's making it right? We're, Step up.
4: We're gonna. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, I interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> You're good.
5: Uh, Jim wants to hear your answer.
4: We're gonna do what's right for this community. Mm. Well, that's what's what what right. Good. But did you, your derailment did it change me now?
0: Uh, tough stuff and of course there's a lot of uh politicking surrounding this and i'm not just talking about um, the accusations in the direction of trump um but uh is making all sorts of typical leftist corporate greed corporate greed lack of regulation arguments that are unsupported by the facts so get ready for his visit cuz i'm sure he'll repeat what he's been sending in the form of letters for example uh, he said, uh, "It's uh, one of the issues is um, uh, the need for union-backed regulations requiring a minimum of two crew members on trains." Well, uh, as the Wall Street Journal opined, technology is making it safer and more efficient to operate freight trains with one worker in the cab, as many passenger trains do. And regardless in East Palestine, that train had three crew members, not two, not one. Oh, boy. So again. Uh, Peabut, just just another in a long line of disingenuous hacks that parade around these uh, disasters to try to uh, make the claim for more government, more regulation, uh, do as much as they can to feather bed the situation for their union friends. He also said uh, paid sick leave, paid sick leave. That's an issue. Um, but there's no evidence of a shortage of paid sick leave. That a shortage of safe uh, paid sick leave contributed to the disaster. So uh, he he's just, "This is the whole thing. It's just this. Here's an opportunity. We got the nation's eyes fixated on this disaster in East Palestine. So let's trot out the old talking points. Here, you know, all the things that we're fighting or half fought in Congress. Let's just bring them out again, and we'll use the the catastrophe there and the." Empathy that people feel for the residency of East Palestine to see if we can move all these regulations that we otherwise have been unable to move because they're otherwise irrelevant to things like the safe operation of freight trains. So just expect more of these red herrings from Pothole Pete today. Uh, Joe Hoffman Estates.
8: You know, one thing I never hear about, uh, which is uh, surprising, is. The same administration just a few months ago told these uh, rail workers, the union, that they have to go back to work. And due to that, a lot of people from North Fork, Southern, and the uh, UP and all them, uh, walked. They didn't like that. So that's never brought up. And now all of a sudden they want all these regulations when they're the ones that uh,
0: told them to stick it with their union. All right. Thanks, Joe. Mary Kay, Western Springs.
12: Hi, good morning, Amy. You'd mentioned earlier about Trump. How you keep, you know, changing daily. You know, like you, a lot you of vacillation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, me too. I'm like, hmm. Now, what? Now, what are we going to do? Like, you know, yeah, you love him, you hate him. He's verbose. He's annoying. But as far as this uh, East Palestine thing goes, the um, yeah, sure, screw up the whole place. Um, these that man who was interviewed on, I think, Jesse Waters last night. Um, 65 years, right? Did he, yeah, he was C- the
0: CNN Town Hall, yeah. Yeah.
12: Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, CNN Town Hall, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, he 65 years in your home, your parents were immigrants, and they're not going to buy him out of his house. I mean, they're not going to probably. What are they going to do, let that man sit there and rot? He can't even take his dog out? He, he's nervous to let his dog out to take a, a, a pee? I mean, what the heck? I mean, if something like that... Oh well, you know. Well, it was a good. It was a good there? question.
0: Yeah, thanks for the call, Mary Kay. It was a good question that was raised actually on on Jim Stewart's behalf by some other uh, resident of East Palestine who was part of the, you know, panel uh, that was asking questions and making comments. That yeah, yeah, to buy him out of his house at the pre-disaster value of the house because you know he's like I want to retire, but it's not even about what he wants. It's about what's right. And so if you destroy the value of somebody's property, then you owe them compensation. Right. And I think it will be relatively easily, rel- relatively easy to demonstrate that that disaster has irreparably harmed uh, the property values. Yeah.
2: I think so. At a minimum down. Yes. at a
0: minimum. Right. For residents. And so, I mean, and I and I also get I mean, Shaw's answer of the CEO of Norfolk Southern. You know, is the corporate babble, like political babble. They're indistinguishable. Right, exactly. I see you. I hear you. But
2: some people don't even want to move even if they offered them a a ton of money because that's their home.
0: Well, that's fine. That's their choice. It's their property. But what I'm saying, if Jim Stewart, if he does want... Uh, comp- to compensation for the damage to his property value, then he should get it. And I would have expected the CEO of Norfolk Southern to be a little bit ahead of the game on what people might be asking and might be thinking about in terms of making them whole or as close to whole as possible. And I would say, "Look, we're we're still working out the numbers, but the idea of compensating you for damage that this accident did uh, to your property values um, is certainly something that we're." trying to figure out i'm don't like you know we're gonna these generic appeals to we're gonna do build it back better kind of biden is biden ease just just have a have a give people something substantive like make some commitments that we are looking at specific things as part of an overall plan to make people whole or again or as i said as close to whole as possible and that would certainly include Compensation for irreparable damage to property value, but you know instead you get the the university professor political hack type of response. It's annoying. Rich Indian Head Park
7: hey, Good morning gang good morning Amy. Um, <clears throat> by Trump going to uh, Ohio, it shows where the president should actually be. He should be in this country protecting the people of Ohio and telling them that they will get whatever whatever they need. Uh, as long as it takes Instead, he's over in Poland, making, uh, uh, speeches about how he's going to protect Ukraine and give them all the money they need and weapons they need and protect them as long as it takes and whatever they need. Well, don't you think that should be for the people of this country first? Thanks. Thanks.
0: Thanks for the call, Rich. Dan and Amy, Chicago's morning answer.
1: Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560 The Answer.
0: Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The uh, special grand jury that was convened in Fulton County, Georgia to examine the administration of the 2020 election and the potential tampering, illegal tampering in the election by president Trump and uh, others in his orbit uh, as well as questions of perjury committed by witnesses before that special grand jury. The report out of course, that there's a recommendation of indictments against several This gets taken up by the Fulton County D.A., who then ostensibly would convene an ordinary grand jury to vote on whether or not to indict in the cases that are recommended for indictment by the Fulton County D.A., and that could include former President Trump. Well, the four human of the jury and the special grand jury.
2: Yeah, she's another reason why Dan Proft is single.
0: um, She. She. has some sort of fascination with magic, according to a Pinterest page. <laughs> uh, that's I checked I'm, it out too. I'm not was, kidding.
2: Well, I think there's something wrong with her. I mean, or she's just enjoying the spotlight a little too much. I don't know. Well,
0: um, Ooh. yeah, she's gave she's given Gosh. rather colorful interviews to both MSNBC and CNN. For example, this is what she was focused on when she talked to MSNBC. The prospect of Trump testifying before the special grand jury, which, of course, never happened. But she was ready sort to of go if he was really excited, you know, by the prospect, even though it didn't happen.
12: Did you personally want to hear from the former? Presidents? I wanted to
13: hear from the former president. But honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. Mm. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump. Of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in, I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. I can see how trying to get the former president to come talk to us would have been a year in negotiation by itself. So it sounds like that was ultimately (laughs) a battle that you
3: all
14: decided not to wage. Exactly.
13: That's kind of how it ended up, was that I'd be fascinated by what he said, but do you think he would have come in and said anything groundbreaking or just the same kind of thing we've heard? So at some point, you don't need to hear 50 people say the same thing.
0: Hmm.
13: You know what I mean? At some point, you kind of start to get the gist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of giggling. Uh, When she was on CNN, the giggling continued. This is her response to... uh, cnn's fungible anchor person don lamone or some don lamone impersonator it doesn't really matter uh her response to trump's statement that per the reporting on the special grand jury's investigation and the report summarizing it that he was exonerated here's what she said
13: i'm not positive he read the right document but um i will say that if what he was talking about was our statement where we indicated that there was no evidence of widespread fraud or widespread vote fraud in the Georgia 2020 election. That might have been what he meant. Other than that, I'm not positive what he meant by that. I'd I, be interested to know. I'm sure we will hear more from him after um, <laughs> after it all.
0: There's that infectious laugh again. Uh, and if uh, nothing happens, like does she she want to see people indicted that she recommended, or she and her, the other members of the special grand jury recommended? Well, sure, she does. She's excited to see how this ends.
13: I will be sad if nothing happens. Like that's that's about my only request. There is is for something case. to happen. I don't necessarily know what it is. I'm not the legal expert. I'm not the judge. I'm not the lawyers, but. I, I will be frustrated if nothing happens. This was too much, too much information, too much of my time, too much of everyone's time, too much of their time, too much argument in, in court about getting people to appear before us. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, OK, we're good. Bye.
2: Um, the, the process doesn't work that way. I mean, there are grand juries that do not hand down indictments, young lady. Why is she going on this media blitz tour anyway? But I, she, I thought
0: like, that's not. It's, it's odd. I can't believe odd. the the district attorney would Allow would it. approve of that, although I to her credit, I guess she did make several mentions of the judge's order and what he kept out of public view. And she tried to she was doing her best, she said, to not speak to anything that the judge made a specific decision to keep out of public view at this point charlie hurt uh, washington times editor was on with uh, tucker carlson last night he had uh this to say about uh four human courses interviews and to really appreciate it you really have to watch them because you have to see her facial expressions oh, as it's... she answers questions Ooh. it's a little bizarre She's ridiculous
5: and it's easy to make fun of her, but, but if you, if, you know, think about this. Think if this was an, actually, an actual serious case and think if, if you had actual serious adult prosecutors prosecuting a serious case. And, and you were the person that was facing, uh, you, oh, you know, you, your life in jail. And you looked right. up into the jury box and you saw this lunatic sitting in the jury box. These people make a mockery of everything we stand for. And I would argue in a lot of ways, the, you know, even more important than voting in this country is the, the concept of a jury of your peers. You can't be railroaded by a bunch of people who, don't, who aren't like you, who don't come from your, from your society. And the idea that you would, you, you would have a grand jury with people like this on it makes a mockery of all of that.
0: Mm. I, I got to tell you, though. Now. I got to tell you the best thing I mean I I I I this is sort of a corollary to what I've said before mm-hmm. that the best thing that could happen to Trump with respect to the classified documents flap would for him to be indicted by Merrick Garland the best thing politically that could happen to him well uh, layer in Fulton County Georgia the best thing that could happen to Trump is that the Fulton County DA decides to indict him for whatever crimes they Allege, or the special grand jury alleges that he committed, which Miss Corse seemed to be indicating that he was on the list of recommended to be indicted. But right, but then again, that doesn't mean that
2: there's actual charges.
0: Well, that's the so the best thing that could happen to Trump is for the Fulton County DA to indict him on whatever charge. The best thing that could happen to Trump, and again, this is just politically, is for Merrick Garland to indict him because then he gets to run against a local D.A. in a Dem dominated county in Georgia and or Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice and the FBI. You want to whip the base up? You want to get Republicans focused on something other than Trump versus DeSantis? How about Trump versus the Fulton County D.A. and this kangaroo special grand jury? How about Trump versus Merrick Garland, D.O.J. and FBI? That is that is center cut for Trump. Just speaking electorally. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, pro answer line. 64636DA, Turnkey Pro text line. Um, just to rewind, to sort of reset the table here, because, of course, there's been so much agitprop promulgated by the D.C. Press Corps around this call that Trump, and it wasn't just Trump, that's part of it, Trump, Mark Meadows, election attorneys, the call, the infamous call he had with Brad Raffensperger that was released Right after the first of the year in 2021, where he was allegedly trying to tell Brad Raffensperger to go find 12,000 votes. I don't care where you find them, Just go find them So we win because you're a Republican and I'm a Republican. And that was the gist of how it was reported. But that's not that's not what happened on the call. So just a couple of clips from that call that was released two years ago. Here's Trump telling Raffensperger that his numbers are wrong and Raffensperger telling Trump, no, your numbers are wrong
10: based on all of this. And there's, there's nothing wrong with with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having, the, having a correct... You, the people of Georgia are angry. And these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night, along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated
7: well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump persisted.
10: So so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? Uh, we won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it, and you can reexamine it, but, but reexamine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers. This should go very fast. You should meet tomorrow because you have a big election election coming up and because of what you've done to the president, you know, the people of of uh, Georgia know that this was a scam. And because of what you've done to the president, a lot of people aren't going out to vote. And a lot of Republicans are going to vote negative because they hate what you did to the president. Okay? They hate him. And they're going to vote. And if you would be Respected, if really respected, if this thing could be straightened out before the election. You have a big election coming up on Tuesday.
0: Of course, he was talking about the Georgia Senate runoff right. in 21. Um, but so there's more than just Trump making a generic case that you should do a reexamination because uh, your numbers are wrong. And Raffers are saying, no, I, and you know, you're you Republican. And I'll, there's more than that. There's Mark Meadows on the call saying I'm I'm reading from a transcript of the call. We had, I believe, it's about forty five hundred and two voters who voted but weren't out weren't on the voter registration list. So it's forty five hundred and two who voted but they weren't on the voter registration roll, which they had to be. Okay. You had eighteen thousand three hundred and twenty five vacant address voters. The address was vacant and they're not allowed to be counted. That's eighteen thousand three twenty five. And remember the spread was less than twelve thousand. Right. Smaller number, Meadows goes on, smaller number. You had 904 who voted where they had just a P.O. box, a post office box number. And they had a post office box number, and that's not allowed. We had at least 18,000. That's on tape. We had them counted very painstakingly. 18,000 voters having to do with uh, name, uh, having to do with some, having not having to do, I'm sorry, the name is redacted, having to do with somebody uh, who is whose name was redacted. He goes on to say, she's a vote scammer, professional vote scammer. Scammer and hustler, that was on tape. That's been shown all over the world. That makes everybody look bad. You, me, and everybody else. So my point here is to say, Mark Meadows goes through specific buckets of voters to say, to just to say, we didn't like the outcome. We think you're wrong. Just go redo it. It's wait. We've got forty five hundred two here. We've got eighteen thousand three twenty five there. we got nine hundred four here. So you know
2: that adds up.
0: So you got to address that. And then later on in the call. Cleta Mitchell, who's a well respected election attorney, one of the best in the country, goes and and another election attorney on the call, go through in more detail these buckets and where exactly they want Raffensberger to focus a possible re examination. So, not saying do a recount statewide, they're saying we have the, identified these buckets of voters and we think that there's a good faith basis for you to go back and recount these buckets of voters and also make determinations on whether. Certain voters, certain votes should have been counted in the first place, but within these limited buckets. So it wasn't wild and willy. It wasn't just go find 12,000 votes. That's completely been misreported. taken out of context. And so the basis for this special grand jury and all of this uh, palace intrigue about indictments is without foundation, as far as I can tell. And then now what, what what could you have? Well, now you have people that were called as witnesses and they either invoke their Fifth Amendment right or maybe they said something that, uh, that could be construed as technically untrue and so then you're going to hit them with a process perjury crime. Good luck with that.
2: Yeah, 75
0: witnesses total. Frank Arlington Heights.
5: That statement by Charles Hurt that you had mentioned and, and the whole I, or that he mentioned that some of the people on that grand jury are a mockery or a mockery of the system and so forth. Well, I just want to add the entire last, at least 40 years. And, and you could arguably say all the way going back to the progressive era through Wilson has been a mockery to the idea of a Republic and to our country and the found, and founders of our country. The people that we have in office are morons. Most of them, we're very emotional people. We don't think things through whether in terms of voting we vote for and in terms of support and just knowing things about the world and the way it operates i mean it's all a mockery the entire thing this country is in serious decline our civilization is in serious decline because we're too emotional and we don't think and that's all a mockery to all the founders and the people who started this country and, and our ancestors and the enli- the very enlightenment itself and those great thinkers from the 1700s 1800s it's a joke
2: the whole thing. Well, why they, why didn't the, the judge phone. put a, a gag order on those jurors and on the, the four person? I just can't believe that she would was allowed to go out and talk about this. Nothing sacred anymore, huh?
0: Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer.
1: Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The answer. <laughs> This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM five sixty The Answer.
2: Hey Dan. Oh, uh oh. Yeah. Oh, I basketball update. You were right. We got beat by Deerfield by ten points
0: last night. So sorry to hear that.
2: Yeah, end of a season. It was a great season. They had a great run, so it's over. It's
0: over. Uh, okay. Uh, well, hopefully uh, Eli can still get that college scholarship.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll try.
0: How I'll did he play know. against your field?
2: He, leading scorer for our team. He had 12 points, seven rebounds, five blocks, believe it or not, and four assists. But hmm. uh, they didn't have it. They couldn't break the press. He would have been very disappointed.
0: You've got you to be able to handle the ball in the playoffs. It's I know. got to be able to deal with pressure. People were scared. Pressure defense. Every time yeah. we
2: play suburban schools, they get so nervous. doesn't matter what sport it is. It's so weird. It's like, oh, we're playing the suburbs. Ooh. It's all right. Relax. Take a deep breath.
0: Um, So uh, turning to. Uh, yes, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. D- well, I just, the, the, the Mike Scott newscast. Did you catch that? Uh, State Representative Katie Stewart is introducing legislation to yep. create genderless bathrooms, mm-hmm. multiple stalls that would be genderless. Yes, you know, like with the tampons
2: dispensers, free tampons for the boys and the girls. In these, Katie Stewart uh, is bathrooms. from
0: Metro East. She's not from Hinsdale. She's not from Wilmette, River Forest, Metro East. Could you imagine 10 or 15 years ago a legislator from southern Illinois introducing such legislation? No, of course not, because you weren't paying attention. Could you imagine we'd be in an era of butt babies and tomato paste periods?
2: And the butt babies come in three different colors.
0: No, you, you couldn't because we weren't paying attention. Things are on a continuum, as I beat that drum yet again because everybody looks basically, not everybody, but most people look just, just past the tip of their nose. Uh, we'll just we'll have this little contretemps over some issue in school, and then it'll get settled, and then we'll just return back to normal and no. And what does the, 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 the cultural Marxist do? Moves as fast and as far as they can, There's a little bit of a pullback if there's a change in political power temporarily. But but of course, that change in political power, you know, if you get somebody that's more center right, well, they just maybe move it back a little bit or just stop the progression. And then there'll be some tumult and the Marxists will be in again and then off to the races they are, which is why things are always moving left. And conservatives are so befuddled that their lack of courage and foresight doesn't win the day. Oh, it's just common sense. So people will come to their senses, will they? Fifteen years ago. I'm sure. Excuse me. Eighteen years ago, 2005.
2: Okay. What do you Eighteen
0: got? years ago, this was an episode of South Park called Mr. Garrison's Fancy New Vagina. Another classic South Park. Okay. Uh, and the scene, Mr. Garrison, with his fancy new vagina, goes to Planned Parenthood to get an abortion. 2005. Did you think the trans ideology was an issue then? Come on. Honestly, who's, who believed that it was? Did you think it would be where it is today in the schools, in the culture? The associated intolerance mutilating children, did you think that's where we'd be today? No. Because we were just looking over the tip of our nose.
4: You here for an abortion, too? Yeah, I discovered a few days ago I wasn't bleeding out my coups, so
15: I Mm. guess I'm knocked up.
5: Is this doctor any good? (laughs) Mrs. Garrison? Oh, that's me. Hello,
15: doctor. Looks like I need an abortion. Mm.
4: An abortion?
15: Yeah, I've got one growing inside me. Now, are you are going to scramble its brains or just no. vacuum it out? Oh
0: my God. Love South Park. If
4: you want, you can just scramble it and I'll c*** <laughs> it out myself. Mr. Garrison. Mrs. Garrison. Mrs. Garrison, you can't have an abortion. Don't you tell me what I can and can't do with my body! A woman has a right to choose! No, I mean you're physically unable to have an abortion because you can't get pregnant. But I missed my period. You can't have periods either You had a sex change, Mr. Garrison But you don't have ovaries or a womb You don't produce eggs You mean, I'll never know what it
15: feels like To have a baby growing inside me And then scramble its brains and vacuum it out? That's right (laughs) But I paid $5,000 to be a woman This would mean I'm not really a woman I'm I'm just a guy with a mutilated penis
4: Basically, yes Oh, boy, do I feel like a jackass.
0: Eighteen years ago. And where are we today? Well, I just gave you some indications. How about this new children's book from Penguin Books? She persisted. The story of Rachel Levine. You know, the man impersonating a woman who's the number two at HHS. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah
2: yeah who took her mom out of the nursing home to save her life, but left the other ones to die that person yeah,
0: yeah who I'm strikes, familiar with her work, yeah who strikes a bearing resemblance to Mitch McConnell, yes, <laughs> that one <laughs> Rachel Levine,
2: but with longer hair, okay uh-huh yeah,
0: that's good. so do you start to see like a you start to again get the sense of runway, and the point of this is not to uh castigate people why didn't we see where we'd be today it's to say in real time today are you looking ahead at the run, at the end of to towards the end of the runway understand where we are today and what do you think comes next as we have added to the parade of horribles that marches through our cultural institutions in the last 18 years and you really want to say, well, that's no way that could happen. Oh, and that's not. Couldn't be. Right. Well, that was the parody. And, of course, I'm sure the the left, now that this has resurfaced, is scrambling to have it scrubbed from social media and, and South Park deplatformed and so on and so forth. Well, here's the reality. And not just the more grotesque mentions of children's books and butt babies and tomato paste periods. Real people, real people who are led down a path of self-harm and self-destruction in many cases. We just tell their stories, just try to profile their stories because they're the ones that have the guts to come forward and at least serve as a cautionary tale. Uh, The story of Michelle, She's a Canadian who is suing uh, those health providers, both uh, the doctors who performed trans surgeries on her, as well as mental health providers who facilitated her transition.
14: Here's Michelle's story. Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm a detransitioned woman, and I am pursuing legal action against the health professionals that facilitated my medical transition. I began identifying as transgender in young adulthood with no dysphoria beforehand. This was not a red flag to me as I was assured that many people discover their true gender identity later in life. Less than a year after coming out to myself, I was prescribed synthetic testosterone, which permanently virilized my voice and appearance. I had a bilateral mastectomy 14 months later, and finally, eight years into my transition, I had a medically unnecessary hysterectomy covered by the Ontario Health Insurance Plan. Each step involved irreversible alterations to my body and came with serious risks, yet all were met with little challenge despite my long-standing history of mental health struggles and no indication of gender-related distress in childhood or adolescence. I am alleging that this lack of inquiry is a failure of due diligence amounting to medical negligence towards a vulnerable patient. I will have to live with the effects of this so-called treatment for the rest of my life. I have spent the last 18 months involved in healthcare advocacy related to this topic. I have spoken at universities, presented at webinars, been featured in news articles, appeared on podcasts, and written blogs semi-regularly sharing my experiences and my thoughts on how something like this could have happened. My advocacy is largely not for me. What happened to me cannot be undone, but rather it is in hopes of preventing it from happening to someone else. It took me 10 years to figure out why I could have falsely believed something like this and why so many professionals could have wrongly encouraged it. I can imagine that there are a lot of people who will eventually find themselves in my position some of them vulnerable adults like I was, and some of them too young to understand the long term consequences. Through this action, I am not only seeking justice for myself, but also hoping to raise awareness about the recklessness of gender affirming healthcare. Concerns about it have been raised internationally, with several countries altering their approach in response to systematic reviews of the evidence. However, here in Canada, discussions about it have barely gotten off the ground. I'm hoping to start that conversation. I am being represented on a contingency basis. I am crowdfunding to be able to cover out-of-pocket expenses, such as those for obtaining medical records and hiring experts. I'm a low-income individual who has been on disability for the past couple of years. It has always been really difficult for me to ask for help, but I will not be able to move forward with this action without it. At present, the statement of claim has been filed, the defendants have been served, and we're in the process of obtaining medical records. I will keep everyone informed of updates as I receive them. I am truly grateful for everything that is given to me. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
0: She's 34 now, 21, when she began her detransitioning. So she was an adult, but nonetheless, there's more to the story. And before I get to the more to the story, prescribed testosterone, Mm -hmm. bilateral mastectomy, and hysterectomy.
2: Mm-hmm. Can't get that uh, back.
0: She um, uh, writes at the age of 21 after years of depression, anxiety, self harm, and a suicide att- <clears throat> and a suicide attempt. She discovered the concept of gender identity on Tumblr, and became convinced that her problems were because she was transgender. So that's what she's referencing when she talks about mental health struggles: depression, anxiety, self harm, and a suicide attempt. That was the backstory. Um, in 2010, she attended a support group at the Sherbourne Health Center in Toronto called Gender Journeys. She met a therapist there named Rupert Raj, who was one of those therapists running the group and also a name defended in the suit she mentioned. Uh, Rupert Raj referred her for male hormone therapy after one appointment that lasted less than an hour. Uh She also received, Michelle, a recommendation from her regular therapist, also named defendant, Nadine Lulu, whom she had started to see following her suicide attempt in 2008. Two years later, Dr. Lulu said that Michelle was an ideal candidate for hormone therapy, despite being aware, obviously, of her history of mental illness, including a suicide attempt. Dr. Rick Lindahl, a defendant, signed a letter in July of that year in his role as, in July of 2010, as Dr. Lulu's supervisor recommending Michelle for hormone therapy, even though he never met her. And it just goes on from there, being just a mindless cheerleader because of why. Either money, you know, this is a business that we're developing, business unit we're developing in the medical profession, or ideology or some combination of the two. Can you imagine 18 years from now, the kind of recriminations people will be having, the kind of um, damage, permanent damage that will be done to many more young people like Michelle? Brian, St. John, Indiana. Hey,
8: good morning, Dan. Um, this is right in my wheelhouse because I have kids in this, uh, demographic. I have this three-year-old and a six-year-old, and, uh, you know that I am dead set against these children's books. Uh, just out, put out the freak for the parents with kids my age. Um, pay attention to Lindsay Amir, Megan Madison, Jessica Raleigh. They put out, uh, books. They're called First Conversations for Gender, First Conversations for Race, and there's, Images in those books of four-year-olds at four-year-old birthday parties talking about I'm trans, uh, what are your pronouns, um, you know, just just down the line, I've objected these books to the Lake County Public Library system, and I've lost, and I'll lose, and I'll lose every single time, but at least I'm putting them on a record. Um, it's so disgusting. Um, I know they're giving Lupron to kids. Uh, Lupron, according to the St. Louis Zoo, is what they give male animals to stop uh, firm production it's like it's insane so uh, keep up the good fight thank you sir
0: thanks for the call Brian you too and uh, Brian and St. John is doing it in the face of I'm sure librarians and school board members and teachers like this woman in Arizona you're about to hear
2: oh, I have a master's so I'm the smartest person in the world
0: this is what uh, you're up against and you have to be willing to deal with straight away
13: I have a master's degree
2: because when I got certified, I was told I had to have a master's degree to be an Arizona certified teacher. We all have advanced degrees. What
13: do the parents have? Are we vetting the backgrounds of our parents? Are we allowing the parents to choose the curriculum and the books that our children are going to read?
2: I think that it's a mistake. I'm just speaking from the heart. Um, The one line that I love is uh, we must remember that the purpose of public education
13: is not to teach only what parents want their children to be taught. It is to teach them what society needs them to be taught. We mm-hmm.
2: Exactly why parents should get involved. I'm better uh, than you because I have a master's degree, so I know what your son or daughter needs to learn.
0: I have a master's degree, but I'm going to speak from the heart, not from <laughs> the mind. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that's a perfect person to say. Oh, that's fascinating, master's degree. What, what's the subject? And l- now let's explore your knowledge of the subject. And of course, that's a straw man argument that she set up there. That parents want to determine the curriculum. That you know, they're they're pouring through every every uh, course and saying these are the books that you shall read, that my kids should read, that the students should read. These are the textbooks you should use in chemistry and biology and math, and so. None of that's happening, and nobody's suggesting it should happen. They're saying when there is a pornography, and like Potter Stewart, they know it when they see it, uh, when there is one-sided ideological instruction of a partisan nature or uh, even more in the areas of gender in primary grades then we got a problem with that that's the actual debate that's happening or that's the actual uh, critique that is coming from parents who are concerned about what these totalitarian re-education camps called k-12 through government schools and a lot of private schools have become that's the discussion and when
2: you watch the whole video it doesn't look like she has a heart she's just self-righteous and is a big know-it-all
0: there was an interesting uh, back and forth between Matt Walsh, She's the documentarian who did What is a Woman? And some of these other podcasters, uh, this guy Tim Poole, and a couple guys, somebody from Prague, a couple people from PragerU. And they basically criticize Walsh, even though they agree with his position on things like this, this destructive trans ideology that has uh, swept the nation. Um, they... They essentially say you gotta soft pedal it. And he says in response Trans TikToker Dylan Mulvaney is running around like some cartoon of a woman passing out tampons in the woman's room and meeting with the president to defend the mutilation mutilation of children. But I went too far? You see, this is where we differ, because in the cultural war I don't think it's possible to go too far by speaking truth. The truth is the truth, is it is what it is, it's the reality. Or are we going to defend it? I mean, are we, or are we going to defend it or are we going to conceal it? Are we going to embrace it or are we going to hide from it? You can't have it both ways. When it comes to gender ideology, the truth is ugly. It is brutal and harsh and disgusting. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. I didn't make it this way. I didn't create the ugliness. I'm merely pointing to it and saying, look at this. Look at it for what it is. But you would rather that I soften the blow a little, that I dress the truth uh, to make it prettier and more palatable. You want me to lie to protect the feelings of our enemies. And make no mistake, people like Dylan Mulvaney is our enemy. He is an open visible, he is open, visible, active, and passionate advocate for the abuse of children, the war on fundamental truth, and the destruction of human society as we know it. You wish to defeat this man that will not make him feel bad about himself, but I'm here to tell you you are delusional. I'm not going to protect your feelings any more than I'm going to protect his. You're deluding yourself. We got in this position in our culture precisely by valuing politeness over truth. We got here by doing exactly what you would have me continue doing and what you blame me for not doing. We got here by refusing to speak the plain truth and by allowing the anti-truth brigade to emotionally blackmail us into silence. They use their own mental fragility as a cudgel to beat us into submission. That's the threat, and we let them get away with it. Or you do, or you do anyway. I won't. And uh, I completely agree with Matt Walsh, and there is no, there is no way forward if you value polite what they, what they would say is politeness over truth, if you're unwilling to call things what they are. If you're unwilling to call things what they are, if you're unwilling to speak the truth plainly, then you might as well throw in with the other side because that's what they're doing. Dan, Southwest Side.
6: Boy, you're so gloomy this morning. I don't know if it was uh the the inability to break the press or the weather.
0: No, so I, there's little bit of both. A, yeah, I I I didn't play as well at Pine Tree.
2: Oh, I that's great. He, oh, uh, He's got different uh, problems. Yeah. He's got rich people yeah. problems. Yeah. Yeah, right. tell tell
6: Spalding to get his foot off the boat. There you go. <laughs> um so, so what, an upside of the non-gender bathrooms and the free tampons for men is for years, and I'm a 50-year-old guy, mm-hmm. for years I've been depending on my underwear to protect my pants from my behind. <laughs> now I just use the tampon, and I call it a
0: man pod. Very good. A man pod. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Thanks for the call, mm-hmm. Dad. Oh, boy.
1: Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile.
0: Stop of the morning, Dan and Amy. it's the Lenten season. So what better time than to... Uh, Review this new biography on Francis Cardinal George.
2: And we'll get to what you give up for later.
0: Uh, we will. Yes. Michael Heinlein is the editor of Simply Catholic and the author of the new book, Glorifying Christ, The Life of Cardinal Francis E. George, which is available March 6th, but I'm sure you can pre-order on all the, in all the appropriate places. Michael Heinlein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
15: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Simply Catholic, uh, that's a phrase that Cardinal George liked to use, too. What does it mean?
15: It means that we must get beyond the labels of left and right and get at the heart of true and false, which is really the the story of Christ, isn't it?
0: It is. And um, so, I mean, so Cardinal George was was known, um, even outside of Catholic circles, as being a uh, a prodigious intellect, but... Uh, tell us something about him as a simple Catholic.
15: Well, Cardinal George was someone who was committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, and so he wasn't caught up in any of the uh, worldly concerns that sometimes plague bishops or other Catholics. He was only concerned about God's truth and how we are to proclaim that to a world. That, particularly in his mind uh, our own world needs it so much
0: Uh, but he also had to operate in the real world and uh, he had to deal with real problems within the church including the sex abuse scandal Um, he was criticized for how he handled what he was in charge of handling as it pertains to the sex abuse scandal how would you review his performance on that matter
15: well, there was a lot of, um, untold about the story of Cardinal George and handling the sex abuse crisis. What we know um, was particularly uh, told with a, a unique perspective, perhaps an agenda. Cardinal George was never someone who wanted to talk a lot about himself. But what I uh, have told in the book, and I hope that uh, people pay attention to, is that Cardinal George was one of the, perhaps the, strongest advocate for zero tolerance in the face of abusive clergy. And he had to fight even in the halls of the Vatican to get that codified in law, because even Rome back in the early 2000s was a little hesitant to make zero tolerance a permanent thing. But Cardinal George was there to advocate for that. And um, there were times, of course, the uh, well-known story of Daniel McCormick, in his case in Chicago, which was horrendous and was a real albatross around the Cardinal's neck until he died, he admitted that there were failures on the part of the Archdiocese. He himself took the blame, since he was at the top. He never tried to cover up anything. He never uh, tried to, uh, you know, make excuses. But at the end of the day, Cardinal George also was willing and able to enact reform and invited a former FBI officer to come into the chancery uh, to look at the systems of how the Archdiocese handled abuse
0: allegations.
15: And really, he left the Archdiocese much stronger in that sense.
0: When you uh, think about his time at the Arch and and uh, the time since his passing under Cardinal Cupich, um how would you compare and contrast what the Archdiocese of Chicago is today under under Supich as it was under George.
15: Well, the uh, comparisons and, and contrasting of, of Bernadine and George was something that also came up in the media back in 1997 mm-hmm. when Cardinal George was appointed to Chicago. And when he was asked that question at his uh, announcement of, of being Archbishop, uh, he said that Cardinal George was a, uh, or sorry, Cardinal Bernadine was a Southern gentleman, but he said, I'm a Chicagoan. So he certainly made his own way and proved to be his own man. I certainly think that Cardinal Supich has proved to be his own man too. And um, I think that the history books will, will evaluate Cardinal Supich's tenure in Chicago on its own terms. I think that Cardinal George's priorities, um, uh, you know, some of them are Cardinal Supich's priorities too. But Cardinal George had a different approach, and he, he was a missionary, he was a university professor, he was a scholar, he was someone who was very much uh, connected to the people. And so whatever, uh, you know, can be drawn or, or not between the two of them, um, I think, you know, uh, their their whole purpose in life is, is to proclaim the gospel, and so we hope that— uh, You know, the people will certainly still be able to practice the faith under either of them.
2: But would you agree that Cardinal Francis George wasn't political by any means? Because I feel Cardinal Supage is.
15: Well, Cardinal George was allergic to being political. Um, Cardinal George, again, when he was appointed to Chicago in 97, was asked if he was liberal or conservative. Yeah, I remember. And he said, I'm neither. He said, Catholicism is about true and false. And so um, Cardinal George's whole approach. To dealing with moral issues in uh, society was to proclaim the gospel truth, to call out politicians, you know, when they are, uh, you know, fracturing society because of their uh, lack of understanding of of God's law. But uh, he was never one to meddle uh, in in political circumstances, and uh, he was even perhaps you would say um, uh, someone. Who tried to stay away from it he, he didn't even like to have his picture taken with politicians if he could avoid it
0: um what about vision you know as it comes to again the operation of the archdiocese i mean you have to be a, an executive too in that position obviously rely on people with financial expertise for example but still you're you're the executive you're the head of the archdiocese and so his vision for Uh, dealing with the financial challenges uh, that the Arch faced, in particular because of the litigation associated with the sex abuse scandal, but not limited to that, uh, Catholic schools that were struggling financially and so on and so forth. Sort of his vision for the Arch as an institution in Chicago, Catholic schools as an institution in Chicago. Can you uh, give us some insight there?
15: Colonel George would be the first to say, um, that he wasn't always the best at administration, um, because he had a different set of parameters through which he viewed his ministry as a bishop. So, um, he, he would often quip, uh, when I meet St. Peter at the gates, I, I won't have to answer how much money is in the checking account. I'll have to answer how many souls I save. He was always very reticent to, uh, close institutions, although certainly he did quite a bit. Um, he even closed the, uh, the church where he himself was baptized. Uh, he, he was very, very hesitant to close schools because he said when you close a school, you close the child's entire world. And so um, he had a sense of providence about him that that as long as you're doing what Christ asked of us, then the money will follow and, and the... Um, the circumstances in which, you know, we find ourselves needing the resources to proclaim the gospel, God will take care of us. He had a real sense of providence that doesn't necessarily match up with the qualities we look at in administration.
0: One of the things I was critical of Cardinal George, one of the few things uh, I was critical of Cardinal George about was his handling of Father Michael Flager, and maybe that's because I'm political and he wasn't, but... um, you know, my view and the view of a lot of Catholics is that is that Flager is an embarrassment to the Church, and he uh, there were seemed to be special rules for Flager that were not uh, governing other priests, uh, or that didn't govern him, that did govern other priests, probably a better way to put it, and uh, I, there was uh, clearly some tension between the two, and he disciplined him on at least one occasion that I can remember, but... Um, but many people, myself included, wanted him to go further. Uh, how would how how did he view someone like Michael Flager, um, and how would you assess the way that he handled someone who was rogue like that individual?
15: Cardinal George often said of himself that he was sometimes hesitant to make decisions, sometimes desultory. I think that the Flager um, situation certainly exhibited that to a certain degree, but what was it that he was hesitant about in kind of cracking down on Father Flager, as some might have wanted? Um, I think that Cardinal George's main concern there was that he did not want uh, St. Sabina to break off from the Catholic Church, because he was very much concerned about unity in the Church, salvation of souls, and for as many problems as people might be able to identify, with the way that the faith is lived out at St. Sabina, Cardinal George knew that at the end of the day they were Catholic, and that uh, he didn't want the people of the parish to be driven away from the Catholic Church. Um, But as you say, he did discipline Father Flager. Uh, He he actually suspended him twice from ministry because of his... uh, once because of political engagement uh, that crossed the boundary in the Cardinal's mind, and then a second time because he was threatening to leave the Church Uh, after asked to be reassigned. And um, Cardinal George was very clear that uh, a priest who is ministering in the Church needs to uh, be of the mind of the Church, and so that's why he took those actions. But uh, yes, many people were definitely um, unsatisfied with that stance, and I think uh, in the end, the Cardinal was still uh, a man, he was a human being, he was someone who found himself very frustrated with Father Flager. Uh, Father Flager himself told me that, but um, Cardinal George also respected the good work that Flager was doing uh, in the area there, particularly you know the works of social ministry of the church. And so um, he he really felt that 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 cutting him off from the church was was going to somehow leave the church uh, less less. Uh, performative less able to carry out the work of Christ
0: Uh, one of uh, Cardinal George's more uh, bold and thought-provoking hotly debated statements was the following I expect to die in my bed my successor will die in prison his successor will die a martyr in the public square and his successor will pick up the the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history Um, you know, I'd be interested in your interpretation, your understanding of what Cardinal George is trying to communicate there, because it sounds like if his successor is going to die in prison and his successor after that will die as a martyr in the public square, we're in for some rough times ahead.
15: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, Just a bit of background about that. He was asked that question at a gathering of priests in Louisiana in the days when the church was really uh, being persecuted under the Obama administration in regard to the HHS mandate. And uh, the question was asked, what's the worst that could happen? And so this Cardinal gave this kind of thought uh, uh, project for us to think about. What is the worst that could happen? And he was just repeating, really, what's happened in society in the last two millennia of Christianity, that these things are not things that have not happened before. And so there's that now he can also be looked at as a bit prophetic, although he he bristled at being called a prophet, but he was he was kind of warning us in many other ways, not just with this quote, about the ways in which our society was abandoning the laws of God, and the you know that only bad things can come from that so he he was in a sense warning us that we 're in for a bumpy ride but The most important part of that quote, I think, as the Cardinal himself reiterated several times, is that it ends in hope, that the Church will pick up the shards of a broken society and bring healing, because only the Church is capable of doing that. So ultimately, Cardinal George was a man of hope that knew, yes, there is the cross, yes, there is Good Friday, but there's also Easter
0: Sunday. He is Michael Heinlein. He's the editor of Simply Catholic and author of the new book, Glorifying Christ, the Life of Cardinal Francis E. George, which, again, available March 6th, but, uh, you know, queue up and order now. Uh, Michael Heinlein, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Appreciate it.
2: My pleasure.
15: Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro Answer line.
0: Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560
1: mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
0: Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So this week, 37-year-old biotech entrepreneur named Vivek Ramaswamy announced for President of the United States, running in the Republican primary. We've talked about him before. He uh, wrote a book called Woke Inc. He's taken out after ESG, environmental, social governance, when it comes to uh, investing and just corporate policy in Fortune 1000 companies. Sort of a metastasization of the die ideology. And uh, very successful. Uh, The biotech company he started as obviously a young man. He's still a young man. was very successful. So he made a lot of money. And he's taken on the Larry Fink's of the world, BlackRock, when it comes to ESG-driven investing. Here was his announcement video this week, in part. We're in the middle of a national identity crisis. Faith, patriotism, and hard work have disappeared, only to be replaced by new secular religions, like COVIDism, climatism, and gender ideology. We hunger to be part of something bigger than ourselves, Yet we cannot even answer the question of what it means to be an American. Today, the woke left preys on that vacuum. They tell you that your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation govern who you are, what you can achieve, and what you're allowed to think. This is psychological slavery, and that has created a new culture of fear in our country that has completely replaced our culture of free speech in America. And that is why today, I am announcing my run for president of the United States. Hmm. I mean, so there's a little bit of, uh, you know, it's a little cliched, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, I like a lot of what he said and what he's done. He's obviously a sharp guy. Uh, Is there a, a possible third track available in the Republican primary for president for somebody from outside the system, like a successful entrepreneur like Vivek Ramaswamy? Well, let's get a businessman's take on Vivek. Christopher Whalen joins us now, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, LLC, author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise, and editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst as well. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
16: Hey, good morning.
0: What do you think about uh, Mr. Ramaswamy?
16: Well, I like what he said. I think it's all obviously true. You know, we're in a time of national confusion, Uh, The left took COVID and turned it into a a soundbite. And uh, nobody has had the courage to stand up to them and push back. And I think the Republicans are working on that. Uh, But, you know, it takes courage. When you have people getting assaulted on the subway in New York City because of the color of their skin, and you have gangs of people roaming around spouting woke ideology at you, Uh, I think, you know, we're kind of on the cusp of civil war in a sense, Uh, but I don't think it'll end up that way. I think the economy is going to slow down a lot this year, and then all of this fun and games and the, you know, uh, crypto companies going public and the rest of it is going to disappear pretty fast. That's the irony, of course. You know, Joe Biden is moving Lyle Brainerd from the Fed over to the White House, and I think it evidences – uh, fear and weakness uh, on the part of the economy. I think there are a few people in the White House that have their heads screwed on, and they realize that by the end of this year we're going to have a recession for the bottom half, and then the top half is going to be doing fine. Well, of course. And the politics of that, I think, are going to be extraordinary, Dan.
0: But before we get to uh, Lyle Brainerd and, and what you mean by the um... – uh, that's a sign of weakness just uh, uh, since Ramaswamy has made ESG that's uh, that's one of the issues of which he rose to some prominence um, um, how important is that to address attack see, seek to uproot in corporate culture and if things do go the way you say with respect to the economy will those fun and games subside somewhat as well
16: Well, when we have a Republican in the White House again, I I hope that they completely expunge ESG from all government agencies. I think the people in the ratings community, for example, my old colleagues at Kroll and Moody's and S&P should be chastised publicly for going down this road. They've built the whole business around ESG. And you know what's so funny? Dan, it makes no sense. If you read the stuff that they publish on ESG, it is the Biggest pile of nonsense you've ever seen. So, you know, we've allowed ourselves to be kidnapped by these opportunists in our political world who have constructed these, you know, things like ESG, which have no meaning. It's just purely rhetorical. But it helps the woke left try and advance their objectives. So I applaud this guy. I think this is great. We should be going after these people and force them to admit that a lot of the things they say are completely, you know, vacuous and without substance.
0: Back to Brainerd uh, and uh, the uh, elevation of Brainerd as a sign of weakness because why? Because she's a a big uh, quantitative easer?
16: Well, no, let's leave that aside. I think the bottom part of the economy, the people who were most harshly affected by covid and by the lockdown, is slowing down dramatically. If you look at the level of defaults on mortgages for people uh, in the low-income strata, in the May world, I would say about half of those loans are headed into the dumper, hmm. uh, and this is a big problem. You know, people oftentimes kind of don't pay attention to the world of credit and bonds because stocks are more sexy, obviously. It's easier to talk about if you don't know anything. <laughs> and so when, when problems start in the engine room, which is credit, and this is the great strength of the U.S. economy, remember, the reason we bounce back is because we actually have a bond market. Um, well, when we have problems there, people in Washington are not going to know how to deal with it. I, I speak to a lot of agency heads in D.C., and they are running scared. I got to tell you something, Dan. You know, Republicans are not that well-tuned into the economy either so they don't realize what's going on. But if we had a Republican candidate who was talking to people of lower means and lower income about how they've been screwed over the past four years, you'd win the election, hands down. well is, are I'm, we I'm have not sure Republicans know how to have that conversation yet.
2: Sorry for interrupting. Are we going to have a housing collapse like we did in 2007,
16: 2008? It won't be that broad this time, Amy, but it's going to affect lower-income households and the credit cost. lenders is going to be severe. Uh, Let me give you an example. Two years ago, when Jay Powell was giving away free money and interest rates were down around zero, Mm -hmm. uh, mortgage companies were buying defaulted loans out of pools so they could fix them and sell them again and make money on the sale, right? They're not doing that now. They don't have the money. So all of these defaulted loans are accumulating in Ginnie Mae securities, and they advance the interest in the principal, Every month, but they don't have the money to fix the loan. So, this pile of detritus and problems is going to accumulate. And I think people in the White House who are paying attention know this. They know that we're going to be in a recession by the end of this year. How does Big Joe run for re election if he's coming out of a financial crisis? That's the uh-huh. question Republican strategists ought to
0: be pondering. Right, I mean if he I'm still not convinced he makes the race regardless, but but that's a separate well, discussion. Well, I I'm with
16: you Dan, but you, nobody's yeah. pushing back on him yet. Yeah. You notice the Democrats have not said a
0: word. No, I, Amala I,
16: Harris has not said a word.
0: They're, they're you know, it's that they're they're
2: they're you know, moving, yeah.
0: Well, they they're, they're there's nothing wrong. They're waiting for the shoe to drop, I think, because they don't want to seem too Uh, aggressive. Yeah, they don't want to seem too aggressive there. But um, I I want to go back to, you said, uh, if a Republican candidate speaks to the lower half of income earners about how they've been screwed over the last four years. Tell us what that sounds like.
16: Well, I think you have to you know, people actually now have heard the word inflation and they're starting to realize what that is, which is they can't afford to live anymore. So you have to start to identify who it is in the system who's been promoting it who promotes the endless inflation that helps stocks but it kills everybody because over time the purchasing power of your dollar when you go to the grocery store is less and less it's like living in weimar germany except we're in slow motion okay so you know in this case yeah but you have to talk to people who can't live anymore and why are they supporting uh, left-wing candidates in states like New York, where we should have won the governorship, because we're not articulating this message well enough yet. That's the problem. we got to talk to these people and become a little more populist in our outlook. And then I think the Republicans can be the majority party in this country. But they've got to realize that at the end of the game, if all we care about is pushing up stock prices with lower interest rates, that's not a winning solution because the reason our politics is radicalizing is because people can't afford to live anymore. you know hey, it's a fairly simple equation, but we don't get it yet.
0: You uh, had a post at uh, at your um, your outlet institutional risk analyst uh, the other day suggesting that um, you know uh, pump the brakes if you think that uh, the interest rates are going to continue to steadily neatly decline that we could see a push to double-digit uh, interest rates on home mortgages again before the yeah. year's out. Uh, uh, explain.
16: Well, the the market for housing, uh, for mortgage loans, still has way too much capacity. So you have lenders out there making loans to people today to buy a house that they're going to lose money on. Why are they doing this? They don't want to fire all their people. They're trying to keep their team intact for when the Fed drops rates and they can make money again, right? So, unfortunately, everybody thought we were going to raise rates, and by March or April this year, uh, the Fed was going to say, okay, fine, we'll go back to the way things were. Now it looks like we're going to see rates up for the whole year, and that's going to have really tough consequences for the economy, for banks, for non-banks, for everybody, auto lenders, because the amount of increase that the Fed has baked into the pie is so large compared to what we're used to going back 30 years, right? We haven't seen this kind of move in interest rates in a long time. And the shock it is sending through the whole system, Dan, is profound. People don't see it yet because it's at the bottom of the stack. We're still seeing delinquencies rising in those lower-income households, but it's going to move up. And that's the inevitable aspect of credit. You start to see it in credit cards, you can see it now. You start to see it in subprime auto, yeah, we can see it now. But nobody's talking about it. It hasn't risen to the top of the soup in terms of the national narrative.
0: But, but Jay, Powell, so, Jay Powell has to see the same thing that you're seeing, and then it's just a question of uh, – is it a question of – I should say is it a question of willpower, or is he going to have no choice but to continue to jack interest rates well beyond, as you were suggesting, the, another quarter point or two that's been predicted?
16: Well, here's the thing about the Fed. You've got to remember the Fed as an organization is woke, okay? So they think about the economy. They think about GDP and all of this economist gobbledygook. They don't get into weeds very often. So when you say to them, gee, guys, uh, if Credit Suisse is not acquired or if we don't clean up this mess in a good way, this could have real bad implications for the housing market. Why? Because Credit Suisse has been the key bank in that space for 10 years. They have been the go-to guys in government lending. So if they leave the room, who's going to pick up the the slack? Guess. Goldman Sachs. Uh Uh-uh. You can't build a government loan market on Goldman Sachs. I'm sorry. I love them dearly, but no. So the liquidity in these markets is ebbing as we talk. And the willingness of people to come in and buy distressed assets is declining as we speak, Dan. So what's gonna happen is by June or July, the credit markets are gonna be really seizing up. And you know how you see this? Look at the foreclosures and bankruptcies in commercial properties. These are all related things, okay? They may not fit neatly together if you're an economist working at the White House, but if you work in the world of credit, you can always see the crisis coming. You know, the guys who are short this market now are growing in number every day. And there's a reason for that. So you know, just trust me on this. The Fed is going to miss this, just the same way the people at the White House are, because they're not focused on detail. They're focused way up here at ten thousand well,
0: feet. So then, the, con- the one of the conventional handles uh, about the prospect of a recession is that it'll be, uh, it won't be as, as it won't be deep, but it will be. Long, it's going to you know it's going to last longer than people anticipate. It's not going to be in a shock and a recovery. It's going to be essentially malaise, sort of Carter years malaise, is what some have said. What it seems to me you're suggesting is that there may be malaise, but there may be a deeper shock than people are expecting too.
16: Well, yes, because the Fed has manipulated interest rates so dramatically from where they were. They were at zero. You know, we're we're right now. People are writing six and a quarter percent loans this morning, and they're still barely breaking even on the loan. They're not making money when they sell that loan into a security. Two years ago, they were making four and five points right. when they sold the loan. So that's the difference. And consumers, I think you're going to see, you know, the lower FICO borrower who's trying to get a first house in a FHA, you know, program, 99 percent uh, loan, one percent down. The cost of that loan could easily get up to 8 or 9% as we go through the rest of this year. That's going to stop activity pretty much dead in its tracks, and that's not good. So again, I think the reason that they moved Lyle Brainerd from the Fed to the uh, the White House is because the White House is actually running scared. They're going to have a big smile on their face as they talk about the economy, but they can see the numbers. You know, FHA delinquencies are above 10% now. And that means that every servicer out there is losing money, okay? How long are they going to do this? Maybe a year. So the so, Fed will have to drop rates by the end of this year. You can guarantee that because the system can't take it for that, that long.
0: Well, so back to, you, back to what you said in, in response to Amy's question about uh, the housing market and the, you know, the bottom half is going to take a hammering and the top half will marshal through. Um, how does the bottom half take a hammering without it impacting at least some of the top half?
16: Oh, it will. It will ripple through the whole system because you know, the, the loans that a bank owns that they make to rich people, okay, there's very little default activity on those loans. The Banks don't worry about it, and that's why. They were told by Elizabeth Warren, don't make loans to poor people. So the whole marketplace for lending for lower-income households has changed compared to 2008. The banks aren't in that market at all. And that's a source of weakness in the system. It really is. And they've been trying to deal with this over time. But, you know, Washington is not good at details, as you know. (laughs) They really are not. They can mail checks to everybody every month. But that's about the only competency they have. Uh, So if you ask them to manage a financial crisis or understand what's happening inside the private markets, they're lost, totally lost. I mean, I can count on one hand the agency heads in the Biden administration today that are actually competent. The rest of them, forget about it. They're just decorative. So, you know, when you're in a society where appearances are more important than substance, this is what happens, right?
0: Right. Trains derail and so does an economy. You Uh, know, the
16: the Biden administration is filled with uh, attractive, uh, articulate incompetence. We're going to find out who they are in the next few months.
0: <laughs> Christopher Whalen, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise, and editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst. Chris, thanks as always. Appreciate it.
16: Have a great
1: day.
2: Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you
1: listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer morning Answer At AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer.
0: Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Oh, this is delicious. This is just so good. Angela Davis, who is a longtime communist and professor, I repeat myself, she's at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, the banana slugs. right. Yes. Uh, she right, she's been a communist candidate for president before, maybe her time is near arriving. She went on this uh, PBS program that's hosted by Henry Louis Gates, also a professor. Remember he was the the beer summit guy.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah,
0: some cop in in Cambridge looked askew at him, and cl- he cried right. racism. And then Obama set together a beer summit with him and the cop, Biden and, and we were and we were going to you know forever. Uh, races were going to come together because Obama was going to heal the nation and so on and so forth. How'd that go? Uh, Anyway, Angela Davis went on his program on PBS Know Your Roots and she found out something about her family's ancestry that she didn't anticipate.
1: Any idea what you're looking at? That is a list of the passengers on the Mayflower.
4: No, I can't believe this. No. My ancestors did not come on the Mayflower. Your ancestors came
1: on the Mayflower. No, no, no. You are descended from one of the 101 people who sailed on the Mayflower.
4: Oof. That's a little bit too much (laughs) to deal with right now.
1: Did you ever in your wildest dreams... Think that you may have descended from people who laid Never. the foundation Never. for this country. Never. <laughs> this racist country. Never. Mean.
0: Oh, my Never. gosh. <laughs> Angela Davis, black separatist, card-carrying communist. She, she's Ro- just another honky yeah. like me and you. How about that? Now she's also you know, losing her breath because in California, that means she may be writing a $5 million check. Oh. She's on the wrong side of the reparations <laughs> racket, too. Oh, my God. What a terrible a, day for Angela I know Davis. What I was say. This
2: is a bad one,
0: huh? Uh, How do you recover from something like this? Isn't that great? Maybe Chadwick Moore can help her. He's written a book about it. Chadwick Moore is editor in chief at Outspoken, contributing editor to Spectator World, author of the book, So You've Been Sent to Diversity Training, Smiling Through the DEI Apocalypse. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
11: Hey, great to be back. Thanks for
0: having me. Uh, uh, Angela Davis may be in need of one of your therapy sessions. Uh, Any advice and counsel for her uh, now that she uh, has been outed as a descendant of the the noxious Mayflower uh, passengers who founded this horrific racist nation? (laughs)
11: <laughs> yeah, a, a bad day indeed for Angela Davis uh, to learn that she's an oppressor and she's um, yes one of these people that uh, if she's taking a DEI class to learn that you know she's the problem and uh, she <laughs> needs to basically sit down and shut up and listen to other people because she doesn't she needs to learn to listen now and stop telling everyone how to live and what's wrong with the country. Uh, that is um, that's the the road that she's going to be on now if uh, we play by. The rules that people like her have been uh, putting forth uh,
0: in recent so, years. Yeah, it's just it's so sad when the anti-racists are cannibalized by anti-racists. So, uh, just a quick, couple of quick uh, bits of advice: if uh, somebody listening has uh, been uh, been uh, flagged for DEI training or die training, as I call it, the diversity, equity, inclusion training, um, what, what should they do to get through it with their gray matter intact?
11: <laughs> well, so in the book, you know, I talk
0: to people from all walks of life. Uh, I talk
11: to, you know, secretaries, uh, police officers, people in the military. I talk to guys on oil rigs and people who just, you know, work on retail sales floor. And, you know, it, it's amazing how it, it's one of these it's one of these phenomena that basically um, I kind of compare it to just before the fall of the Soviet Union, where you had this these people in um, in uh, East East Germany who, who before the, the Berlin Wall fell, they all sort of thought that all their neighbors were on board with the party line and they repeat things they read in government papers. And once the, the wall fell, they saw this cascade of people pouring into the West. And they realized that everyone around them had been thinking and feeling the same things that they had but were too afraid to speak up. And this is something that you can compare to – what I found at least the DEI training on the job where, of course, everyone doesn't want to say anything um, against it. Everyone just kind of sits through it. It's, it's basically kindergarten for grownups. It's you know, the golden rule of t- treat others as you'd like to be treated has gone completely out the window. And now it's treat people differently. Uh, most normal people are not thinking about or worried about the skin color or sexuality or gender of the person in the cubicle next to them. But for some reason, this force in our society and people in the C-suite think that they are, at least they should be, really concerned about these things. So, you know, I found people that were, that were um, they would get kind of more amused or incensed the more they thought about what they went through in DEI training. And, um, of course, they wanted to use their real names. very few people did, because they're scared of these things. So I think that you'd probably be surprised at how many people around you, um, whether they're liberal or conservative, are probably feeling the same way you are about these stupid things. And yet you have uh, maybe a tiny percentage of of your workplace that are these kind of radical, wacky activists. You know, they are the true outliers. But of course, they have the microphone, get all the attention and, and, and all the praise bestowed upon
2: them. And, Chadwick, I see that you sent a copy of your book to Don Lemon. What did you I put did. in the inscription? Mailed... What did you write in there? <laughs> well, so, you know,
11: Don Lemon has had to go to diversity training because of his misogynistic <laughs> comments. So and sensitivity I training. I I would send him a copy. I did. I, I mailed him a copy uh, yesterday, <laughs> yester, two days ago. And uh, I wrote, uh, you know, Dear God, good luck with the training. Love Chadwick.
0: So I hope he reads it, and I hope he enjoys it. Oh, you met Chadwick. He's he's hurting. You forgot to say, dear Don. Dear Don. I see you. I, hear, I you. hear you. Then the whole good luck with the DM training. Yeah. <laughs> I should have called you first because that would have yeah, been much better. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, there's no when it comes to sensitivity <laughs> training, you're talking to the expert right here. I
2: mean, did you find what he said offensive? I mean, I'm a woman. I thought, oh, he's just you know. It's just Don, being Don. Be Don Googling and admitting, too, that he yeah. Googled but didn't read through the headline of the Google.
0: Why doesn't Google have to go to sensitivity? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought
11: it
2: was like a
11: stupid and bizarre thing to say, but he's known for saying stupid and bizarre things, which right. is why we it's, love it's his him. brand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's his brand. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but I can imagine a lot of women at CNN were deeply offended by that. So that I can I can see how the network itself. I think uh, – Normal people. It's almost strange that you would say that attack for Nikki Haley. I mean, you wouldn't say anything like that about Hillary Clinton or anything or anyone uh, of that of that party.
0: Yeah, right. Right. But like yeah. Diane right. Feinstein. I mean, yes. The list I mean, goes on and on. Well, and and <laughs> right, and in political terms, by the way, you know, fifty-one is not old when you're talking about running for a, a state office, much less a much less a national office. Um, so, something else too, and just speaking of crazy activists at work. Sam Britton uh, back in the news, uh, you caught the same story I did. I saw you tweeted about it. Sam Britton was the uh, the cue ball uh, that was assigned by the Biden administration to handle our nuclear waste. And he does have a background. I, I think he's got a degree from MIT. So apparently he's a smart guy. But he's also a bit of a touched guy when it comes to fashion sense. And he's got sticky fingers at the airports. So he had to resign because he's stealing other people's baggage at airports, which is a odd version of kleptomania but it's not just their bags he's stealing apparently he may be stealing actual fashion designs there may be there may be a, a copyright uh, or trademark infringement suits against Chadwick Moore at least by one woman in Tanzania yeah so th- it turns out this is uh, it appears is actually true this fashion designer she,
11: she's a, a black woman she's Tanzanian. she lived in Houston uh, she she, one of the bags that he allegedly stole belonged to her, and she's posting photographs of her designs and him wearing them in public. People on Twitter have been finding designs that might look like hers, uh, photographs of Sam wearing these, sending them to her and saying, this one of yours. And she's like, yes, that is. And then she'll respond with a picture of herself wearing it. These are you know unique original designs, according to her. So this, isn't, so <laughs> this is an the rack garment. Apparently, this is true. Uh, It's sort of amazing. So not only is he uh, deeply touched, as you described, but it looks like cultural appropriation to me. Yeah, right. And Also hurting a black immigrant woman stealing from her. Wow. This is this is going to be quite a mess uh, for uh, the left in the Biden administration.
0: The the side by side picture is great because it's her in the dress that she designed and it's him in the dress that she designed. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> and uh, she wears it much better i i, I must say uh, uh yeah but but that, that's just that's that is the lunacy of this we were talking a bit earlier in the show about uh vivek ramaswamy the uh, biotech entrepreneur announced for president and his his uh real uh, uh offering in his announcement video was against all of this identity obsession and uh, a return to meritocracy which is also one of those verboten words in in our culture these days and uh um you know so maybe there's not a third uh, a third track right now for a republican uh with desantis and trump but but ramaswamy i think is you know over the target when he's talking about identity politics
11: yeah yeah i but yeah and, and it's just i mean who knows what the left and the liberals are up to or what they're thinking but i mean is there anyone who's not completely exhausted by this stuff even on the left i mean we've been exhausted a long time with it but it's it's just as though they have no, they still have nothing else to cling on to they still have nothing but you know accusations of racism and white supremacy and what have you and as long as they keep peddling that 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 talking point and that narrative it's almost like you have nothing left to do but respond in kind so point out when someone one of their poster children sam brinton the non-binary radioactive drag queen kleptomaniac is uh, doing a a black woman of color, uh, a black woman, immigrant clothing and culturally appropriating
0: it. (laughs) Confusing times. Uh, What's your uh, assessment of the performance of uh, Mayor Pete so far with respect to the, uh, well, with respect to just his job at Department of Transportation, it could have been the flights over Christmas or, or obviously the derailment in East Palestine now. uh, It's just the epitome of, Decadence that we see in the left in the Democrat Party. Everything around
11: him is burning. He just couldn't care less. And going back to and even before, but going back to the the um, the the cargo ship crisis, and I think that was 2021, when he was just you know on paternity leave for a month while we had hundreds of cargo ships, thousands you know docked off the coast of Los Angeles, couldn't get supplies to people. He just doesn't care. He still is. while, while we have what happened in Ohio uh the the um the airline disaster of the holidays it's like one thing after another with this guy when's the last time anyone who's not into politics even knew the transportation secretary's name Uh, and now everyone knows pete because it's just one catastrophe after
2: another well he's on the ground right now with a hard hat on and a safety vest I mean, it's such a contrast to what Trump had yesterday.
0: (laughs) He's wearing (laughs) track. What he's wearing (laughs) track. Exactly. Now, to be fair to him, you know, to look at both sides of the balance sheet here, Mm -hmm. um, he has taken a firm stand against white construction workers working in minority neighborhoods.
11: Yeah, he really has. And one of my favorite things about his uh, uh, (laughs) – also the the, the, the system that failed um, over – Oh God, there's been so many. Uh, the other day, uh, I guess it was maybe a month or two ago, when all the flights are grounded for a day because there's an error in a, in a reporting system. That system, the only thing he had done since he come in is uh, instead of checking to see if the system was working properly, oh, it's called "notice to airmen."
0: Yeah, well, one thing yeah. he did
11: with that system is he changed it to "notice to air missions" to be more gender inclusive.
0: Right.
8: So he
11: changed the name of the system, but didn't check right. to see if it actually worked. So we had a day where no flights <laughs> were flying in this
0: country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good stuff, Chadwick Moore, editor in chief at Outspoken, contributing editor, Spectator World, the book. So you've been sent to diversity training, smiling through the DEI apocalypse. Chadwick, thanks as always, appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Thank you. And he joined us on our Turnkey Answer Line.
1: There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one, Chicago's Morning Answer, on AM five hundred and sixty.